Thanks for joining me today, Theology Thursday. Right, well, I hope you've been enjoying some of the stuff we've been looking at for the first part of the week, mostly related to uh, Klein's thinking, but also trying to bridge into this topic of uh, thinking clearly about the place of translation, the place of exegesis in theology at large. And um, we have to be sure to get our translation right before our coming to theological conclusions, or at least in coming to a translation, we have to incorporate theological conclusions. There's more to just um, the process of theology than just you know randomly picking uh, your favorite English verse. Um, you have to make sure that this is the correct verse, and then even in coming to the correct verse, you have to make sure, or at least coming to the correct translation of that verse, you have to make sure that your theology is weighing in on it. So hopefully we've illustrated that and uh, we've, we've shown some of how that works. Um, like I say, mostly related to eschatology in Genesis and Klein's thinking. Let me, let me, in this session, just very briefly steer into something completely different, but something that hopefully makes a, makes a day, I was going to say make a day of it, but make a week out of this whole translation thing, um, and just gets you again seeing the importance of proper translation in relation to theology. Uh, for Theology Thursday. Another big uh, debate that has roared is the debate between continuationism and cessationism, or the charismatic debate, as it's often called. Uh, it, do we uh, believe that the gifts have ceased? Do we believe that they continue? Uh, obviously, there are a lot of things to think about. I'm not going to try and deal with the whole thing up in one go. Um, although, we might come back to this because um, I am a cessationist. I do think that's the correct position. Um, but uh, rather than trying to deal with the whole thing in one go, let me just take you to one very popular passage that uh, informs so much of charismatic theology today, I think. Let me give you uh, just a few ideas that uh, might get you thinking, because these this uh, popular uh, verse in, in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, through to 14, of course, weigh in on the debate heavily again following those uh, principles that we've mentioned previously, uh, you want to have some some exegetical commentaries open as well, and not only the new ones, the older ones as well, because they just give you a, a fresh perspective of sometimes uh, different pockets of scholarship will come into play, different ages, etc. Now, um, we have this... Uh, this First Corinthians chapter twelve thing in mind. Let, so, if you if you've got your Bible, uh, turn there. But let me just uh, run you through it and what I'm thinking. Uh, one of the big things here is is that this passage will be used to kind of um, substantiate the the idea of there being two kinds of of tongues, as it were, or there'll be a a spiritual gift that perhaps might well have been only around in the first century, and that's more like the thing that happened at Pentecost. But then there'll be this other ongoing spiritual gift of tongues for the church um, that uh, is, is, you know, supposedly argued here by Paul to to be something for personal personal edification, uh, something that is not really a real language. It's just kind of this spiritual gift that edifies your spirit. Uh, which is just such a far cry from what this passage is saying. But you can understand how sometimes the translation is unhelpful. 
in, in perhaps confusing the issue. So just using the ESV, but you could use almost any translation here. Um, the first thing to note about this passage is that the whole thing is in the context to uh, the first Corinthian, or the first Corinthian, but the Corinthian culture, which had taken the art of self-promotion to its zenith. I mean, they were, uh, we have archaeological finds that show that, you know, Corinthian culture was honestly like, uh, Greek culture in general, Greco-Roman culture was like, hey, let's let's elevate the self above one's neighbor. Everything is about using everything to get ahead of someone else. But in Corinth, this had been just particularly uh, brutal as a practice, and this was just part of the air that they breathed. And this was obviously affecting um, so much of what was going on in the church in that every part of this book is linked by the common theme of the false spirituality of the Corinthians, which is a, essentially a, a spirituality of self-promotion. They wanted to associate to the, the best leaders so that they could think of themselves as better than the others. They wanted to uh, you know, see themselves as having more knowledge and therefore able to put others down with their freedom and liberty. They wanted to... Uh, just everything in this book is somehow connected to that theme and you know, no different from the spiritual gifts issue. In, in fact, probably uh, years where it comes to the fall in that you, they get together, they see the spiritual gifts as something that shows you to be more spiritual than the other, and they like the, the, the showy gifts, the gifts that made them look like the, the Delphi Oracle, uh, the, where your eyes roll back and you do all sorts of ecstatic utterances, and uh, wow, how spiritual, how spiritual, and everyone wanted to just get in front and speak and be thought of as the most spiritual around. So this is the basic context that Paul is speaking to. You have to remember that if you're going to say that this thing is telling you to edify yourself, if, if the whole exhortation here is, hey, brothers, I want you to edify yourself, you just have to be very careful that that you're seeing that in light of this uh, epistle, which is in, in some senses against self-edification. So we just have to keep that in mind. He does start the whole idea off here with con- concerning the varieties of gifts um, and, uh, and on spiritual gifts. He says he doesn't want them to be uninformed Um because when they were pagans, they were led astray to mute idols. And what they say, he's saying, does matter. Um, words do matter. And no one can speak by the Spirit of God and say Jesus is accursed. What, what they actually are going to utter is meaningful. He's placing value in their communication. And he says, now uh, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. And uh, down to verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, and very important, it sets the tone for the whole thing, for the common good. The whole reason the spiritual gifts are given are not, according to Paul, in this thesis statement, for self-promotion or self-edification, but for the purposes of common edification, for the edification of the other, which is very resonant with the book's basic theme in that the whole idea comes across as, hey, listen, if you're going to be a Christian and let the cross inform your spirituality rather than Greco-Roman culture, then all of a sudden you're going to find yourself most concerned about other people rather than yourself, which is the the theme that Paul meets them in at every single point of controversy. He straightens them out with this cross-centered spirituality, and he's, he's not doing anything different at this point. Um, then you get to chapter 13, the one they always read at weddings and stuff. And actually, he's just he's just drilling that, that thesis home. He's saying, listen, 
even if I had all the spiritual gifts in the world, but I had no love and I didn't care about other people, it's all null and void. The whole the whole poetic like chapter thirteen is to drive home um, that the idea of of true spirituality is going to come across only as it concerns itself with the other person. Otherwise, it's just pointless, no matter how gifted you think you are. It's interesting, though, that in that clearly hyperbolic, uh, poetic-styled language uh, comes a fundamental tenet of charismatic or Pentecostal doctrine of tongues, uh, which which says that um, there is this other kind of tongues, uh, not of men, but of angels, that we are more concerned with when we develop or uh, edify ourselves. So yes, we agree with everything that you're saying when it comes to the tongues of men, but when it comes to the tongues of angels, well, you know, that's that's different. That's that and then we can self-edify as much as we want. Now, obviously that goes against the, the general tenor of the epistle. That's the first point of danger. The second point of danger is that I mean, it's not interpreting the Verse 1 in chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's clearly hyperbolic language. You're not meant to understand Paul as a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Uh, He's not necessarily saying there are tongues of men and of angels. He's just saying if there was, and if there were, and even if one could, who cares? Because here's how stupid it would be. That's that's what he, he's making a forceful point. He's not articulating a, a doctrine of two kinds of tongues, and uh, we get to use the one in this epistle for the ongoing use of the church. I mean, that is just very very bad exegesis, and um, and so I'm trying to just sort of show you even on the lead up to what is often used as the main crux of the the, the argument for ongoing tongues that it's it's already on the wrong track. Getting to chapter fourteen. Uh, Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, immediately, um, you know, this is, see, you know, everyone says, okay, look, there it is. We, there's no cessation of the gifts. Paul is saying we need to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that we prophesy. Well, look, firstly, I, you know, this doesn't say anything to or fro uh, because Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, not to anyone today. And you have to make sure to interpret what he's saying to the Corinthians via correct exegesis and theology to uh, our understanding and, and what exactly this the ongoing command is. So it doesn't prove anything that he's telling them. No one's debating that they needed to prophesy, and no one's debating that they needed to earnestly desire all of the spiritual gifts. Uh, the question has never been whether they needed to do that or not. Paul clearly does direct them to do that. The question is for us. Do you know? Is how does this apply to us? Uh, which is a, a different question. Hopefully, we can see. But again, just not getting ahead of myself. Let me just look at this translation. He says, "For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit." Um, you, you know, you can see how people would say, "Well, there we go." You know, um, tongues are are just the secret prayer language of angels. And, uh, you know, you're uttering mysteries in the spirit. No one's meant to understand what's going on. And so it's okay if it's all gibberish and that sort of thing. 
Um, and then he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, just even before we get to translation, here's the problem with that. You're making Paul say, listen, if you speak in one gift that the Spirit gives, this gift of tongues, it's okay for you to just embrace Corinthian culture and forget about cross-centered spirituality. It's only when you prophesy that you have to worry about the cross. And I'm hoping anyone you know who looks at that will be able to see well, that's that you can't do that. Well, however, you understand this, you have to understand it in light of the whole. And so, when Paul says, "For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God," you know, you have to at least let the thought emerge that the way he's dealing with this thing is he's talking to those who are uh, abusing the gifts, saying the way that you guys are abusing these gifts are are incorrect in light of chapter 13. This is why it's a problem, because no one understands you. Uh, because you're not being understood. You're uttering, mystery, uttering mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, at least the way you're exercising prophecy allows you, or allows other people to understand you, and therefore is in sync with the use of the spiritual gift. And so... Uh, you're doing this wrong and you're doing this right in light of this whole setup that I've given. Um, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. Now, either either he's exhorting you to do that or he's saying, stop doing that. <laughs> uh, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Um, again, at least you're doing that rightly in light of everything that I've said. And now here's where we get to the lynch because here's where the translation thing comes into play. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Um, I want you all to speak in tongues, uh, but even more to prophesy. What is he saying? Well, firstly, he's speaking to them as a Corinthian church, and he's saying, the one who is understood uh, is always the superior because that means the spiritual gift is in accord with uh, its purpose. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Now, there it's clear as day that Paul is saying, don't do the, the unintelligible sound thing. There's no point in it. There's, in fact... Uh, it, it starts countering the point of the spiritual gift. Uh, and then he says, and this is very significant, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to, to me. There I think he cancels the idea that you can have this whole separate category of tongues that just none of this applies to. All of the the, the languages in view for Paul are all languages with meaning, languages of the world. And so the gift that the Spirit gives 
in the first century has to do with this gift involving languages always with meaning and is to be used for the sake of building uh, the church up, not in terms of just speaking unintelligibly to, um, to build oneself up and make oneself look more spiritual. Um, so with yourselves, he says, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. See how prominent that theme is. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, here's where we get to the translation thing. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That's usually the one that causes all the confusion. You could very easily render that. In fact, I think Charles Hodge renders it this way. He is a good example of having an old commentary open. Uh, if, I ha- if I pray in a tongue, uh, you could, that could be if I pray in a language, my spirit prays. All right. Now, it could be that I pray with my spiritual gift. Okay. But my understanding is unfruitful. Now, my mind is unfruitful, but my understanding is unfruitful. See how different that is. Because if you if you interpret this, or if you uh, at least translate this, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, it's playing into this greater idea that there is the possibility of there being a kind of spiritual gift where you don't understand it, it ha- doesn't have any meaning, the whole point is simply to be some mysterious utterance that somehow magically, sacramentally even builds you up uh, and encourages you to the neglect of the church. And it's, it's almost as if Paul is sort of affirming that this could exist. But if you simply translate it, if I pray in a tongue or if I pray in a language better, my, uh, I pray with my spiritual gift, but my mind or not my mind, my understanding is unfruitful. It means something completely different. Then Paul is saying, if the Spirit gives me the gift of speaking in a, a language that I haven't learned, a language that has meaning, a language in the world, but a language that perhaps no one in the room understands, then though I pray with this spirit-empowered reality, uh, and though I myself am empowered to understand it, my understanding is unfruitful. It doesn't bear the fruit of letting others uh, be built up, which is the whole point of the epistle. So, you know, (laughs) that's so important right there, because a lot of people will actually go to that uh, passage to to prove that um, the, the two kinds of tongues exist. Uh, verse 15, and yes, the whole thing just carries on now. All you have to do is replace um, my spirit with my spiritual gift, because that's another possible interpretation, or at least um, translation. And instead of my mind, you, you say my understanding. And you see how it just renders something completely different. Um, he says, verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spiritual gift, but I will pray with my understanding also. I will sing praise with my spiritual gift, but I will sing with my understanding also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spiritual gift, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And then Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, and this is Paul's missionary endeavors, Paul's outside of the church stuff, where he is using this supernaturally empowered gift to, to, uh, to communicate to those uh, to, that, that might not know the gospel otherwise. And, um, and he says, nevertheless, in church, 
in a church like your situation where th- there's no need to to um, uh, preach the gospel to those. I mean, everyone understands in their language. Uh, he says, nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind, with my understanding, in order to in- uh, instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so uh, all I'm wanting to do here is just so that you know, translation and exegesis are important in working together to bring about our endpoint theology. You've got to take all of these things into account. So hopefully that just gives you something to start thinking about. I might come back to this actually and do a greater thing on cessationism and continuationism, but um, more in 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 light with um, in line with um, this idea of translating, which is kind of what we've been dealing with this whole week. Uh, and I might just look at this one more time tomorrow, more at the philosophy of translation and linguistics and language. Um, that That's really what I want to highlight at this point. So uh, hopefully that just gives you something to think about. And if you're interested, uh, flick me an email. We can talk more about this uh, in the future. And uh, we can spend a few episodes on this. But um, the takeaway is to just be careful with your translation. Make sure you've seen the, a range of options and uh, make sure you're factoring in your greater theology and exegesis. Um, otherwise, bless you. Have a great day. See you tomorrow for uh, Philosophy Friday. Mm-hmm.